Please be seated, and if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing on in our study through the book of Ephesians, and again, so great to see all of you, to look out and see folks, even who've come in since I was up here, giving the welcome, so it's great to see all of you. This past Wednesday, uh, <clears throat> June the 3rd, um, was the three-year anniversary of uh, something. And that something was the three-year anniversary of when Alex Hunold free-soloed El, Cap- El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. And you say, what's free-solo, what's El Capitan? El Capitan is a 3,000-foot vertical granite wall. It's like the mecca of the climbing world. Um, and free solo is where you climb something with no harnesses, no ropes, no safety equipment, no nothing. And so, I mean, this thing is massive. Three, it's over a half mile vertical. This is something that people take weeks, not weeks, they take, it takes days to climb. And they will actually have to camp suspended from ropes so they can spend the night hanging out, climb some more the next day. It'll take them two or three days to climb. This guy woke up on a Wednesday morning, 5.30 in the morning. Started climbing four hours later, no ropes, no nothing. He's at the top. I mean, it's something that you slip, like one mistake, and it's game over. One mistake. People have compared it to, like, needing to get a 10 on the floor routine in gymnastics at the Olympics. Except if you don't get a 10, you die. It's a gold medal performance, but if you don't do enough for the gold, you die. And he climbed it. And as part of his climbing, as part of his work in preparation for that, he, he journaled, he studied, he learned every, I mean, he had notes on every handhold, every toehold, every crevice, every crack, every little piece of, like everything he needed to, to know. He, he, he broke the 3,000 foot climb up into like 31 subsections and just memorized everything. And then when he got on the rock that morning, knowing, I mean, the stakes, I slip, I die. You better believe he was extremely careful. He looked carefully where he put his hands. He looked carefully where he put his feet. And in a lot of ways, that is what Paul is is calling us to this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, to look carefully at how we walk. Because ever since we got to chapter 4, verse 1, he said, hey, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he's called us, he said, don't walk uh, like an unbeliever, but be an imitator of God and walk in love, walk in light. And then in particular now he's saying, make sure you look carefully at how you walk. And I think it's really fitting for us that we're at this place as we begin this process of regathering. Because when we're separated, we have, I mean, there's there's something that happens in the gathering of God's people. There's that weekly accountability, that weekly encouragement, that weekly uh, being reminded of, of, you know, Christ's love for us and our call to live for Him. And when when we're apart from that, there's an opportunity for us to just kind of coast or just kind of float along. But Paul's calling us here to a deliberate walk, to look carefully at how we're walking. And so as we begin kind of this regathering, I want us to be introspective with this call. 
To not look out outside and think about, yeah, that person needs to look carefully and that person needs to look carefully, but to look at ourselves, like, how's my walk? Am I being careful with my walk? Or have I just been kind of floating along? To look carefully, that's what I want us to do this morning. And as we look at this careful walk that, he, that, that Paul calls us to, there's kind of two overriding ideas he gives us of, of what a careful walk looks like. And so we're going to have two main points, and we'll get to them as we make our way. But the first one is in the first couple of verses. So let's begin first by looking at chapter 15 again, or chapter 5 again, verse 15. If you read that with me once more, look carefully then, there it is, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, which is the opposite of wise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so, number one, kind of with this uh, put-off, put-on feel that we've seen through chapter 4 and chapter 5, put, put off the old man, put on the new man, that repeated call, kind of with that same idea, uh, number one in your notes is this, walk not in foolishness, but in wisdom. Walk not in foolishness, but in wisdom. And the book of Proverbs is super instructive for both foolishness and wisdom as you think about those things. That's why it's a a really good idea. I mean, there's 31 chapters in Proverbs. works really good with a calendar to read one proverb a day and just be reminded of wisdom, foolishness, just good proverbs. It's It's called wisdom literature, that section of the Bible. And so that's a good habit to get into. But as you do that, you'll learn things like a fool takes no pleasure in understanding in understanding. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. You'll learn that fools live recklessly, i.e. not carefully. To look carefully at our walk. Fools don't. They flaunt their folly. They hang around with other fools. They listen to fools. They despise wisdom. They despise correction. They, they will not admit that they could possibly be wrong, just super filled with pride. This is, this is what a fool is. They despise listening. They despise understanding. Their mouth drip with insults. They stir up strife. The Bible says that person is a fool. The wise, on the other hand, speak life into others. They listen. They seek to understand. They pursue peace or at least try to they pursue harmony and look right here in verse 16 they seek to make the best use of the time because the days are evil that is to say their focus is on eternity not entertainment their focus is on eternity not entertainment and so let's drill down now. What, what about you? What about me? What matters most to you? The things of eternity? Or the things that entertain you? More, more concrete. What does how you spend your time 
and your energy say is more important to you? Things of eternity or entertainment? The wise use their time well. They use their time by trying to live out verse 17. Look at that. Trying to understand what is the will of the Lord. And a lot of times people will be like, what is God's will for my life? And they'll get all wrapped up with that. And I understand that to some degree. We definitely do want to, you know, does the Lord want me to go to this college, not go to this college, pursue this career, not pursue this, marry this person, date this person, buy this house? Like, we, we certainly want to know, does, I mean, we want to follow the Lord. We want to, so I, I get that. But I can say to you with 100% confidence, God is far more concerned with you obeying his revealed will, what it says in Scripture, then he is trying to figure out what he hasn't revealed. Friend, what God wants you to do, like when you think about, like, what is the, I mean, all of this in here, but if we're going to boil it down, what does the Lord want me to do? Jesus in the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus answers that. Luke 10. And a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think... Jesus is talking to the lawyer here. Which of these three, three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And listen, applying this to the current events of today, I mean, is something we, we need to do. And we need to particularly care for our neighbor that we find in the ditch. We absolutely need to do that. But if we keep finding neighbor after neighbor after neighbor after neighbor after neighbor in the ditch, we also, while caring for the individual, need to stop and try to understand the bigger whole and say, why are my neighbors winding up in the ditch all the time? And what needs to change so that this doesn't keep happening? Friends, loving your neighbor... Not just a little, and not just when it's convenient, but loving them as yourself. This is the will of God. And so let us not walk in foolishness 
but in wisdom. Let us make use of the time. Let us understand what the Lord has called us to do. And what is the grounding of wisdom? What is wisdom of God? It is the inerrant, unchanging Word of God. And so let us not walk in foolishness. Let us walk not in foolishness, but in wisdom. And so that's number one. Number two, walk not in debauchery, but in the Spirit. Walk not in debauchery, but in the Spirit. And I'll explain debauchery in a second. Look at verse 18 with me. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And so number two, again, walk not in debauchery, but in the Spirit. Okay, walk not in debauchery, but in the Spirit. And what Paul is talking about here is don't be controlled by anything other than the Spirit. And an obvious example is when you're drunk on alcohol. For one, drunkenness is sin in its own right. Just straight up, it it is. Drunkenness is sin. But drunkenness also invariably leads to other sins because it makes a person lose control to a degree, still responsible, but to a degree. And when you're drunk, you do dumb stuff. Sinful stuff. That tomorrow morning you're going to regret doing. You make choices you would not otherwise make. And so that's, that's an obvious thing. It, it, it should never, we should never be intoxicated with alcohol. We should never be drunk. And if you struggle with that, like, repent and turn from that. If you fall into that. If that is a habitual struggle for you, then talk to an elder. We, we will help you with your addiction struggle. Don't live in the dark. Drag that into the light. Let us help you. But we must also not only... I mean, Paul's not just talking about drunkenness here. He's talking about intoxication. He's talking about things that control us other than the Spirit. And so we must also put off intoxication from other uh, controlling idols. Illicit and prescription drugs, certainly. Yes, those can be that. But also, also, the praise of man. Or power. Or money. Sexual immorality, or politics, or winning, like whatever that is. Like it could be sports, like it could just be you and your job, like winning, success, being right. All of these can be intoxicating as well. And not all of these, like some of these are morally neutral. Like success is a morally neutral thing, but you can turn it into debauchery because what debauchery is and what all those things I just named have in common is they are all about self-indulgence. Excessive self-indulgence. They're all focused on self. That's what debauchery is all about, self-indulgence. And what Paul is saying is we're, we're not to walk in that. We're not to be controlled by the intoxic, 
intoxication of self-indulgence, but we are to be controlled by the Spirit. We're not to walk in debauchery. We're to walk in the Spirit. We're to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time thing. Like, there is a moment in time, if you are a believer, when you are indwelled with the Spirit, that is a one-time thing. Moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. Ephesians chapter 1, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. But being filled with the Holy Spirit is an ongoing thing, and it, it, it's intertwined with growing in Christ-likeness. Like, the more you're filled with the Spirit, the more you'll grow in Christ. The more you grow in Christ, the more you're filled with the Spirit. That is, it's an intertwining And so what does being filled with the Spirit look like if we were to walk not in debauchery, not in self-indulgence, but be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit? Well, what does that look like? Well, the Sunday school answer would be Galatians chapter 5, fruit of the Spirit. A Spirit-filled life looks like this. Here are some markers. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, low social media. And note the last one, not self-indulgence, not debauchery, but self-control. That's like the cliff notes of what a life marked by the Spirit looks like. But then in these verses we have here, 19 19 through 21, Paul gives several participles to describe his call of being filled with the Spirit that are kind of some specific examples also of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So let's examine those together. Look at verse 18 with me one more time. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be, again, kind of put off, put on, but be filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so aspects of walking in the Spirit look like this. Encouragement and singing thankfulness, and submission. And so when we, let's just kind of walk through those. When, when we walk in the Spirit, we, in, we encourage, we are to encourage one another. We are to sing to one another as part of our encouragement. Like we encourage one another with good words. I mean, authentic faith should be generally a happy faith. It should be a faith where we encourage one another. We don't tear one another down. We don't, we're not arguing with one another. We're, we're building one another up in love. That's earlier in Ephesians we looked at that. And so as Christians, we should be joyful. Not necessarily in the circumstances. We look at the circumstances of the world today. We think about our brothers and sisters in Syria and in Sudan and in China. They're not joyful in their circumstances, but joyful in the Lord because at the end of the day, listen, we get heaven. Like in this moment, we have the Lord with us always. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. 
He will walk with us. He will get in the boat with us in the midst of our trials. But at the end of the day, when it's all done and the roll's called up yonder, we get heaven, we get paradise, we get perfection, we get presence with the Lord, which is what makes heaven heaven. And as spirit-filled people, we remind one another of these things. We rem- when we are in the trenches, when we are on the floor, when we are beaten, when we are beaten up and feel defeated, we lift one another up, we encourage one another, we remind one another of the gospel, of the truth, of how Christ loves us and gave His life on the cross for us. Knowing everything about us, not just like our past sins, but every, because I mean, when he went to the cross, all of our sins in this generation, you know, ever since AD zero were future sins. And that's also part of what singing does. And we sing as part of an encouragement to one another. And that's part of why I think like missing the gathering of the body is such a big deal. Like I'm glad we can live stream. Praise God for the technology that we can live stream and, and people can watch. And while, we, while all of us were, were distanced and not able to be together, we could at least still make our way through Ephesians and have a connection. And those who are not quite ready to get back now, they're watching this morning and have the opportunity. We praise God for that. Thank you, Lord, for that technology where we can do that. But there is something very real and very special that happens when the body gathers. And we encourage one another, both with our words, but also with our singing. And, and so in contrast to the like blacked out auditorium with the fog lights and the lasers with the music, you know, and we had to have it kind of loud today because we don't have... Uh, we don't have as much like sound absorptions, and there's a lot of echoes right now. We got plastic chairs. There's not not as many people. Anyhow, in contrast to the blacked out auditorium where you can't see anything, you can't hear anybody, you can't talk to anybody. It's so loud. It's so overwhelming. In contrast to that, that kind of implicitly teaches this time is just about you and God. Paul's actually saying here, no, actually, there's a horizontal dimension to our singing and worship. And we're worshiping God, right? Yes. But there's an encouragement that happens horizontally. Because in praising God, we're doing that together. And in doing that, we are edifying one another. We are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing to one another of the greatness of God. We're saying to one another, be encouraged, hear these words, behold our God, come praise and glorify our God. His mercy is more, be encouraged. And Paul lists psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, I think both denoting like musical styles, that there's differences in those, but also musical feels. Because too often... Too often, a lot of times in churches, just like sing, just play like happy, boppy, life is perfect, me and Jesus. Life is good, me and Jesus. And neglect the boots on the ground. Life is hard. I'm hurting. I'm lamenting. I'm broken. How long, oh Lord, type of moments of our lives. And so we try to include every week 
and I'm sure, I'm sure we don't always get it, but we try to include every week a conscious thought of a song that a suffering Christian can sing. Why? Because we are to encourage one another. And so that's part of what walking in the Spirit looks like. It's, and, and, and note all these things. Like we're talking about self-indulgence, you know, self, self. But all these things here are corporate. One another, one another, one another. Like it's corporate. We are to address one another. It's not self. This is outward. And so part of walking in the Spirit looks like this. It is encouraging one another, corporate. It also looks like a heart of thankfulness. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, we get this when, when it's easy. We get this when things are going well in our lives. But let's plumb a little bit. Let's get into some difficult thoughts for a minute. Like, what about when things aren't good? Just take the context of some of our church members' lives over the last several weeks. We've had a number of deaths during this COVID time. Not due to the COVID, but just we've had a number of deaths during this season. We've had, I mean, our brother Larry Hensley was in the hospital for a month, unable to see a family member because people couldn't go into the hospital. It's been hard. And then you take the context, just, I mean, again, our country today, turn on the news, right? Murders and the overt and the covert racism, the looting, the rioting, the hatred towards policemen. Like, are we to be thankful for racism? Are we, are we to be thankful for the murder of George Floyd or Ahmad Arbery? Are we to be thankful for that? Is that what this means when it says give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? In the 830 service, I asked that question and a four-year-old screamed out, No! Because they're right. They get it. That's obvious. We can't, we're not to give, like we can't be filled with the Spirit while at the same time praising God for that which He hates. Rather, what this is talking about is like the extent of our, of our praise and thanksgiving is to be expansive. Yes. But there's a context for this thanksgiving as well. It's to be in the name of, right there in 20, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are filled with the Spirit when we praise God for everything that hallows and magnifies His name. The name of our Savior. And so to the extent, here we go, to the extent that tragedy makes us depend on our Lord and enables others to see His comfort and seek His eternal promises, we can give thanks for that even in the midst of tragedy. While also not having thanksgiving for the horrors for that, you know, of this fallen world. But for the name of the Savior that alone can answer and redeem those horrors. Because friends, even in the darkest of darkness, God will one day redeem by His light. In Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives. 
and will stand upon the earth. Now pulling up out of that kind of deeper water of thinking through how, how, do, we, how do we thank God in the midst of, you know, disaster and tragedy, and just kind of on the whole, thinking about us, like that's important for us to know, yes, and I want you to. That's why I talked about it. But on the whole, like we are to just be thankful people. We are to be, we are not to be the person who like gets an all expensive, all expenses paid trip, you know, to, to, to uh, Disney World or, or a vacation. And all they do the whole time is complain about what they don't have or didn't get to do. And we're to be thankful when you recognize you deserve nothing. When I recognize I deserve nothing but wrath. That changes your perspective. Like if I deserve nothing and I get something, thank you, Lord. And God's not a miserly giver. Chapter one talks about how he lavishes his grace. It talks about in a parable, it talks about how, you know, if if a father knows not to give his son like scorpion or a snake how much more does our lord give to us good things good gifts god's not miserly he's overflowing with goodness and we should be thankful and so let's just ask the question are you known based upon your actions for a life of ongoing thankfulness or complaining, murmuring, pouting. What marks your life? If you were, if you were going to really think about it, am I marked by thankfulness? Or am I kind of a constant complainer? Spirit-filled believers are thankful people. That's what it says. Not complaining people. Thirdly, people walking in the Spirit are marked by submission. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is super important for us to just know as we talk about what Spirit-filled means. Like a lot of times we'll sensationalize the work of the Spirit. And yes, the Spirit enables you to do what is not natural, but we're not talking about crazy weird stuff. Not, what we're talking about is the not natural actions of loving and submitting to someone else. Submission is a mark of the Spirit. Which means point blank that a person acting brashly or arrogantly or self-assertively is someone not walking in the Spirit. John Stott, the theologian, puts it like this. The Holy Spirit is a humble spirit. And those who are truly filled with Him always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is one of their most evident characteristics that they submit to one another. 
And we're, listen, we're going to see over the next three weeks some distinct calls of submission in specific contexts. We're going to see specific calls to specific people about submission over the next three weeks. We'll have marriage next week. We'll have uh, parenting the week after that. And then we'll have uh, employer and employee relations the week after that. So we're going to have some specific outworkings that this kind of a hinge verse, the submission to one another is going to hang over all of those things. And so there are specific ways that in certain contexts, people are called to specifically submit to one another. But one of the things that you'll note is even in those specific situations, there is a sense in which even those that are in authority actually also submit to those they lead. For example, Paul constantly referred to himself as a slave to all, that he might win some. Husbands are to serve their wives humbly and tenderly, and are even called to die for their brides. Parents submit tons of time and energy and money and emotional well-being in caring for their kids. Yet the kids are called to submit to the parents, right? And so spirit-filled leadership involves humility. Demonstrated most of all by who? This is Sunday school. This is where you say, Jesus. Yeah. The ultimate example of humility. But also the best example ever of leadership. Not as the world defines it, though. The world would define Jesus as a failure. You had 12 people who followed him, they all abandoned him. What kind of a leader is that? But leadership is demonstrated by humility. But then this call, this mutual submission here, submitting to one another, this goes out to all church members. This goes out to everyone who claims the name of Christ. We... If we are people filled with the Spirit, we will submit happily, willingly to one another. We don't flex our liberties. No, we consider one another more important than ourselves and gladly lay down our liberties. We happily check our liberties for others. We happily inconvenience ourselves for the convenience or comfort of others. And as we minister in His name, submitting ourselves to one another, not out of anyone's deserving, but out of reverence for Christ, our crucified and risen Savior shines powerfully. And so friends, this is what it means to walk. This is how we are to walk carefully. And so let's ask ourselves the questions like, are we, let's look carefully at our lives for a minute. Are we walking this way? Am I, ask yourself, am I walking in wisdom or in foolishness? Am I walking in debauchery, self-indulgence, or in the Spirit. Which works itself out here practically, corporately, one another's, outwardly. 
we must look carefully at how we walk. But we blow it all the time, don't we? I do. And whereas for Alex Hunold in his careful climb up El Capitan, one slip, game over. Friends, for those who are in Christ, He is the God of second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and 70 times seven chances. And, and, and that's what this table represents. This table represents this because sometimes, sometimes, like as we analyze our life, like right now, if you're a Christian living your life and you fall, you stumble, you sin against God, you live foolishly, not wisely, you live in debauchery or an act of debauchery, not in the Spirit. You're not filled with the Spirit. You're not walking in the Spirit. What happens sometimes is we, we let sin anchor us into place. We're gripped by it and we're humiliated and we're defeated and we feel beyond help and our sin seems so overwhelming and the grace of God seems so small to us. And then that can morph sometimes into like this, this guilt penance where You feel that you can only return to God after you've sufficiently beaten yourself up enough. But in the gospel, Jesus says, come to me. Jesus came to save sinners, to forgive the guilty, to cleanse the corrupt. And this means that the painful presence of sin in your life should not be the occasion of remaining distant from God, but another reason to draw near. Your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, is not a reason to run from God, but the reason to run to Him. Because we need Him. And it's only in the Son that you will find cleansing and healing and restoration. And when you come to Him, always in Him you will find, for those that are His child, acceptance. And so when we come to the table this morning, let's come remembering this. And so under your chairs, you've got the little prepackaged deal. If you are not yet a Christian, if you have not trusted by faith in Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection in your place for your sins as your substitute, you've not placed your faith and hope and trust in him alone to be your savior then in this moment just leave leave that that package where it's at because this is a holy time for the church where we do two things largely one we remember we remember what christ has done for us i mean the, the 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 bread The wafer in here represents the broken body of Christ. This is what it took to earn our our forgiveness. 
God the Father laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And by His stripes we are healed. We are the ones who deserve punishment. For we are the ones who sin. But God so loved the Father that He sent Jesus. Not just to the world. He didn't just love the world. Yes. But you, individually, God so loved you. Those He called by name. Jesus took your stripes, your sins, your transgressions upon Himself and suffered and died in your place for your sin. And so we come and as we take this, we remember that sacrifice. But we also, we also together proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim together that, hey, we, I repent again and I, 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 I pledge to continue on as a Christian. And particularly for those who are members of Providence, I pledge to continue on as a member here. Fighting together. Not with one another, but together against sin. And to be more Christ-like. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink. Drink it in remembrance of me. And here's the proclamation. Here's the continuing on. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he continues on talking about whoever eats it unworthily. If there's, I'll just read it. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What he's saying is take a moment and come clean before the Lord. Sin that you have not repented of, sin that you have not asked for forgiveness of. I'm I'm going to be silent for about 30 seconds and just spend this time contemplating what the Lord has done for you and repenting and turning back to Him of any unconfessed sin in your life. Fathers, we prepare to take this bread, these elements. Let us do so loudly proclaiming that in Christ Jesus we are forgiven. Amen. If you open up the top little lid, here's the wafer. This represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Him.
Now the second little weird. This represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Our worship team is going to make their way back up here for us to sing one last hymn together. And I want you to sing loud and I want you to sing because it's going to talk about we come broken to be mended. We come wounded to be healed. That's what, that's what this time is. That's what every day is. The Lord gives grace. And so as they make their way, let's pray together. Father, it seems such an empty thing. It seems so small a thing to only be able to say thank you. For what you have done to rescue us from our sin. To forgive us. To realize that on the cross, Father, you treated your son as if he had lived my life. So that you could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' life. That is the exchange. And so on the one hand, Lord, I am crushed in, in shame over my sin that would put Jesus on the cross. And on the other hand, I am exuberant with joy as a beggar in need of grace, that you would so lavish it on me. And on anyone who would simply repent and believe the good news. Hear our prayers and hear our praise. In the name of Jesus.